You may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3. While you're turning there, I just I just want to thank Ryan. I know he's uh, he's under care of our presbytery, and so part of his training is to do exactly what he did this morning. And, and I know he's taken parts of the worship service before, but this was a, a much more of a stretch, and especially after being out of town a couple of weeks for business and everything, that could be rather taxing. But, you know, welcome to the ministry. So I'm glad he was able to experience that, but, uh, and I appreciate uh, your, your encouragement and stuff as well. Speaking of that, we also want to just give you a quick update. I know many of us have been praying for uh, Joe. Uh, Joe is with us this morning, Joe Allen, and uh, he's been seeking a call and just trying to discern what the Lord has for him. And uh, it it appears that, I mean, he has applied at a church. His denomination has uh, approved that, gone through the proper channels, and it's just waiting to put back in his hands. And I I assume since he applied at the church, he'll accept the call and he'll go. (laughs) So... um, Anyway, we're just really excited for God's provision, and I just want to give you that update because so many of you have just come up to me and say, hey, how are the Allens doing, and how can we pray for them? Where are they at in the process and stuff? So I just want to give you that update. So the Lord is so good. Let's, uh, are you ready to hear from the Lord this morning? Yes. Right? Let's, uh, let's do that. And as we look at Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 7, hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the names Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thus ends reading. God's word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do come this morning needing to hear from you, needing uh, for you to speak to us as your people. So Lord Jesus, would you come and by your word, would you do heart surgery in our lives, encourage us, enable us, equip us, uh, rebuke us where we need, confront us, and then deploy us, Lord, in your service. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, today we come to Mark chapter 3, verse 7, which is a a new section in Mark's gospel. 
Um, he's, he's really, this is called the, the, the second phase of the Galilean ministry. And basically what we see in this section, it goes from chapter 3, verse 7, to chapter 6, verse 13. And the local religious officials are complaining much more about Jesus. If you remember in the last section of Mark's gospel, he received more and more opposition. At the beginning, things were great. Ministry is going great. He begins to receive opposition. Well, now that opposition has made its way to Jerusalem. It will make its way to Jerusalem into the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was sort of like the Supreme Court of the religious world, okay? So they send representatives to Galilee to, to check out this Jesus and to see what he's all about. And it's in the midst of this opposition from the local leaders as well as sort of the bigwigs from Jerusalem that Jesus continues on in his ministry, his messianic ministry, uh, moving towards the cross. Well, if you remember last week, we, we looked at uh, uh, the Sabbath day and the accounts regarding that. And, and the last uh, portion that we looked at was Jesus with his disciples in the synagogue. And he heals the man with the withered hand, which, you know, was maybe bad enough in the eyes of the Pharisees, but he did it on the Sabbath. And that just upset them greatly. And so both they, the religious leaders, as well as the political leaders of that day, who neither one really cared for the other, decided to get together to see how they could destroy Jesus, how they could kill him and, and put him to death. But the people loved Jesus. As a matter of fact, when Jesus withdrew afterwards to go to the sea with his disciples, a, a large crowd of people began to follow him. Now, you know, as we oftentimes do in the Bible, we just sort of read over the names and locations and we just sort of move on. You know, because it's sort of like reading the genealogies of the Bible, right? That's for scholars. So we just sort of move on and sort of forget about it. But if you take the time to look at the geography that Jesus is talking about in verses 7 and 8, you see that people are coming from everywhere. They're coming from the north, they're coming from the south, they're coming from the east, they're coming from the west. And uh, they're, they're all coming to see Jesus. And not only that, but I think you've got to understand that they are traveling some distance. You have Sidon, which is in the north, which is about 46 miles from Capernaum, which is through sort of difficult travels and, and uh, mountains and everything. And then Jerusalem, which is sort of the southwest, is like 78 miles. And then Edomia, which is really another name for Edom, is south of Jerusalem. So that's, that's like uh, 166 miles. Okay, just to give you a point of reference, from city center Andover to city center Kansas City, is 186 miles. Now, that's how far they traveled, and of course, they didn't get in their cute little car and drive there, of course. You know, it was very difficult, and there were robbers and thieves, but they were so compelled to go and to hear about this man, Jesus, because they had heard so much. So you have people who are flocking to Jesus from every region, and some of these even being pagan Gentiles who were coming to hear Jesus. Now, early in Jesus' ministry, it was uh, starting to become clear that his mission was to extend more than just to Jerusalem and just in the confines of Israel. That Jesus was a savior to the nations, uh, not just to Israel. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And as he oftentimes does, he upset them greatly. But in Matthew's Gospel, he says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, 
Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, Jesus was describing the messianic age, what was going to happen when he comes. And in Mark's gospel, what he's telling us is, hey guys, it's come. It's coming. The messianic age is, is here. And the Gentiles even begin to see the glory of the Lord in Israel. And they begin to flock to Israel's Redeemer. And even those that are, are his are coming to him. But the Pharisees will come under his judgment. They will be cast out into the outer darkness. And then in verse 8, uh, the last part of that, we see that the people had heard that Jesus had healed many. And so they brought their sick to Jesus. Okay, now there might have been those that came to hear Jesus out of curiosity to see what he had done. But many, uh, it can be assumed, came either because they themselves needed healing or they were bringing loved ones. Now let's go back to what I just told you about the distance. Guys, can you imagine? You know, we can just go down to the hospital and get help, but for them, you know, they had nothing. And so they sometimes traveled 166 miles, taking their sick with them so that they could come, just so they could touch Jesus. And do, and do you see what the text shows? They just, everybody was trying to get as close as they could to Jesus so, so they could touch him. Well, verse 9 tells us how aggressive the people were in wanting to get to Jesus to be healed. In verse 9 we read, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now, I don't know if you guys know what Beatlemania is. Okay, you guys are so young, you may not. I don't know. But Beatlemania, it was a phenomenon where fans, young teenagers, would just go wild whenever the music group, the Beatles, would show up. And they'd be pressing and try to knock down fences and get through the police barricades and just so they could touch the Beatles. Ah, women were fainting in the streets and screaming and crying and it was just amazing. Now I doubt all of that was happening for Jesus, but can you picture that kind of scene when it comes to Christ that they're trying to get to him just to touch him because they so hoped that maybe he could heal them and he could make them well. Well, uh, so Jesus told his disciples to have a, a boat ready for him. And there he healed the people. Now, we also see that as he's healing the people of diseases, that there were also those who were demon-possessed, who came with demons in them. And, and, uh, and we read in Mark 11 and 12, as Jesus would uh, cast out these demons, what would happen? He said, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, that is Jesus, they fell down before him, and cried out, You are the Son of God. You see, they addressed Him as the Son of God because they knew exactly full well who Jesus was. And they had no authority, uh, no choice, but to submit to Him. Um, it reminds you of what James says in James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And what? They shudder. They shudder. Because they know that Christ and His authority is the King has come. And they have no choice but to obey Him. And as Sinclair Ferguson said, he said, Their cry was a cry of despair. Because they had no choice but to listen to Jesus. And Jesus strictly ordered them in verse 12 to, to not make Himself known. His time had not come. He's the Messiah and He is sort of controlling what happens because He is moving to the cross but not... Not too soon. 
And, and so he tells them to be silent. Now, I want to make just a, a simple rabbit trail, if I could, now regarding this whole idea with demons, because I think it can help us to understand faith just a little bit more. These demons knew who Jesus was, and they believed in him. And, and what that means is, is that they believed in him in the sense that they knew who he was, and, and they acknowledged that he had power and he had rights over them. The difference is that they did not submit to, or they do not submit to him. At least they didn't submit to him willingly. They did so because they had to. And, and that's the thing that separates the, the faith of demons from true followers of Jesus Christ. And that is submission. A willing submission. You know, Jesus is an enemy of demons, but he's a friend of disciples, of his disciples. And now, brothers and sisters, I will confess to you, as I was studying this and as this thought struck me, you know, I, I had to look at my own heart and, and even look and think, Lord, do I really submit to you? Or do I oftentimes, you know, even sometimes seek to use the Lord? Is there a sense of, Lord, your priorities are my first priorities. Those things that you want, that's what I want. And I have to be honest with you, I, I was brought up rather short. And it just reminded me that it's not enough to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. It's not enough to, uh, to have and to know the facts of Jesus so that you can say that you believe in him. But saving faith, brothers and sisters, is a submissive faith. It is, it is a, a faith of giving over our wills to his. It is trusting, resting, and submitting in Christ. Now just think about how many there are in the church today who say that they have faith in Jesus, but their faith is really no different than the demons. They believe, but they don't submit to him. Okay, into rabbit trail. So there's this crowd, okay? They're pressing in on Jesus. He's, he's getting into a boat to create some distance so he doesn't get crushed, and, and he's healing. And then Mark just stops. He just abruptly stops with that section. And next thing you know, Jesus is on a mountain. And, uh, you know, he's uh, calling the 12 apostles to come and to be with him. And that's the, the section I want us to look at this morning, is this calling of the 12 disciples, of the 12 apostles. And I want us just to look at three things very simply. First of all, how did Jesus call his disciples? Why did he call them? And, and who was it exactly that he called? And then I want us to think about how that would apply to us. So, how did Jesus call the disciples or the apostles in verses 13 and verse 14? Um, first of all, before we look at the, that text, it's important to know that you know, Jesus has already called some disciples. If you remember back in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, Jesus had already called Simon and Andrew and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, when Jesus was walking along the sea. And he saw them and he called them and they came just right away. And then back in chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, we see the encounter of where there's Matt, or Levi, who's also called Matthew, in his tax booth, and Jesus says, come and follow me. And he does. He leaves and he comes. So the point that I think we need to remember is, is that Jesus began, it's been about 18 months since Jesus began his ministry and he was baptized by John the Baptist. That's the, that's the thing about Mark's gospel. It's like there's no time. You know, it's like this time bubble. It's really hard to keep track because Mark is really not necessarily giving the events in sequential order. He's doing it because he wants to make a point. 
He wants to paint a picture of who Jesus is. But it's been about a year and a half, and a, a lot of ministry has taken place, and Jesus has many followers. As a matter of fact, the Bible uh, alludes to other followers that were following Christ other than just the 12. I mean, uh, think, for example, when uh, in Acts chapter 1, Judas has hung himself. And so there's 11 apostles, and, and they need to fill that one empty slot. And so they have a choice between two men, Joseph Bar Barsabbas and Matthias, okay? And, and they, need, uh, they need men that meet certain qualifications. And one of the qualifications was they had to have a man who had been with Jesus since the beginning. And so these were men who were following Jesus at this time. There are also, in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, it speaks of Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, other women who were following Christ. And so there were a larger group of disciples that were following Jesus. So when it talks about the disciples, it could be talking about the larger group, but then eventually there's times when it's used just in speaking to the 12. But we read in verses 13 and 14, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles. Now, there's a number of things that, that we need to, to note here. First of all, he goes up on a mountain, um, and, and I don't want to expand too much on this, but mountains are sometimes significant in the history of redemption. Revelation is often revealed to some of God's most well-known servants on mountains and stuff. And like I said, I don't want to make too big of that point. It might be that Jesus just needed to get away from the crowd. But, but notice what he does on the mountain. It's on the mountain that he summons those who will be with him. Now, it's hard to tell whether there was a large group that, that went up, and out of that large group then Jesus took these 12, or, or he selected how he did that. It, it just, it's not exactly clear. But Mark doesn't give us a lot of details, but if you read some of the other gospel accounts, especially Luke's gospel account, you, you understand that Jesus didn't just go up on the mountain and say, I'll take you and you and you and you. That actually he spent the night in prayer, praying to the Lord, you know, in regards to this matter. And, and think about that just for a moment. Jesus needed to pray. What an extraordinary thing that the eternal Son of God, who, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, who was very God of very God, and yet in his incarnate incarnation as a man, before an immense, important, significant event, he sees the need to pray. And he spends the whole evening in prayer. What a great reminder for us as, as believers, and what an encouragement for us in our weakness Brothers and sisters, we need to pray. You know, oftentimes we think a prayer is just like a little thing we can do. You know, don't we oftentimes sort of, whether we express this out loud or not, internally isn't sort of the attitude of be like, yeah, I'll pray, but what do you want me to do? Just tell me what to do, and I'll, I'll, I'll get that done. And, and yet we see here in Jesus, it's not just a little thing. He comes to the Father, and he prays, and he, he lifts this up before the Lord, and, and so he's prays before he selects the twelve. And Jesus actually summons, now I hear those words, he summons or he appoints or ordains these twelve to be his disciples or his apostles in the morning. You remember earlier when we talked about Christ calling the other apostles, 
how we made the point that in that day, a disciple would sort of give his application to a rabbi and say, I want to follow you. And the rabbi would have to be like, hmm, let me think about this. You know, and then it's almost like if you applied to the university, you know, you may or may not get accepted. And it was sort of the same way with disciples and rabbis, but you don't see that with Jesus. You don't see that. He, he summons them. And, and definitely this points us to the doctrine of election. From eternity past, God chose those whom he will save. And then he calls them to faith through the preaching of the gospel before equipping them to serve in the community of believers, the church. And the, these 12 men were not asked if they wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus didn't invite them. He didn't plead with them to follow them. He summoned them by name, and they came. In fact, there's nothing in the Gospels that would make us think that these men were dissatisfied with Judaism and that they sought to, to a new religion. And yet Jesus called them. You know, Mark reports, you know, in his Gospel how Jesus called these men. Peter, Andrew, James, and John didn't, you know, they were satisfied with their business as fishermen. They followed Jesus' as disciples here and there, but they weren't thinking about leaving their business to follow Jesus. Levi was going about his business, however shady that might have been. But, you know, he was collecting his taxes and he was happy. And it wasn't until Jesus said, follow me, that he left everything and followed him. And we see the same thing that's, that's happening here, that Jesus sets these men apart from the other followers of Jesus and begins the process of preparing them for the ministry of following him. So throughout this account, we see the sovereign call of God, the same sovereign call that we see as he calls sinners. As a matter of fact, numerous times, Jesus reminds his disciples uh, uh, of this. Uh, let me read from John 15, 16 where Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So, having been chosen by Jesus and, and summoned up to the mountain, these men uh, were now called for a reason. And that brings us to our second point. Why did Jesus call these disciples, these apostles? Well, there's a number of things to consider. First of all, Jesus called 12 disciples 12 apostles and not seven not 14 not 32 you know but 12 of course to a Jewish reader to someone who understood that they would have immediately equated that with the 12 tribes of Israel and in essence Jesus was communicating that he was appointing a new Israel having perhaps some measure of continuity with ancient Israel but also having its distinctive features and unless you think I'm making too much of this point out of this text, uh, you might recall from Galatians chapter 6 that uh, Paul refers to the Galatian church as the Israel of God, right? I mean, Paul had just been spending five chapters talking about how God has put the church together as Jew and Gentile, and then he says that they are the Israel of God. And so Jesus is establishing a new order of Israel, He's establishing his church. He's establishing his people of God in the New Testament. A new city whose builder and maker is God who are marching towards the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, as he's calling them, uh, these 12, for a very significant reason, he's also calling them to be with him. Now, it's, it's, it's very easy. In verse 14, 
we, we could skip right over this. It says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Now, if I were, to, if this were a Sunday school class and I was asking for answers, I'd say, why did they call Jesus? I bet most of us would say they, they, uh, he called them so that they might go preach. But it says even before that, so that they might be with him. As disciples of Jesus, they would learn from him. So the twelve would be able to bear witness to all the things that Jesus had said and done. So just as, as Peter had done, you know, here, I mean, we know that Mark's gospel comes from Peter to some extent. He was most likely the source for that. You know, just like Peter bore witness to John Mark, who then wrote the gospel of Mark, you know, they were to bear witness. And this will be especially become the case when um, it comes to bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These men will be able to bear witness to what they have seen and heard. Uh, we, we heard that kind of language this morning. I don't know if you noticed that when we were reading from the Gospel of Acts or when Ryan was reading to us and he was talking about being witnesses, eyewitnesses. But also in John's uh, epistle, his first epistle, turn to 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. We see the same kind of language. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, these men were summoned by Jesus so that they could be sent out to preach. And they will see and learn from Jesus so that when the time comes, they can bear witness to him. Now that's sort of one of the, the non-negotiable, essential requirements for any kind of faithful ministry, brothers and sisters. That you really can't lead anyone to Jesus if, if you don't know Jesus yourself. Now, I know there are some branches of the church that they so emphasize personal testimony that they totally neglect using the Word of God. And that's not what I'm suggesting. But if I stand here and I tell you what the words of God say, and yet you can very clearly see, I don't believe that myself. I don't even know Jesus. You're going to look at that with, with suspect and wonder, you know, what is really going on in our life. But it's important, brothers and sisters, that we know Jesus, that he calls us to be with him. And that's even true today as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we talk about going out and witness, witnessing him. But if you have no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have nothing to witness about, at least not regarding Jesus. And so... We need to remember that Jesus calls us to witness. And if you don't know him, how can you tell others about him? Well, this is especially true with the case with the apostles um, because they, they didn't have the word of God. They were, they were bearing witness in, in that which God had revealed to them and Christ had given to them. They were to be eyewitnesses, after all, to everything that Jesus said, did in his ministry of the events of his life. And as eyewitnesses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they were to give 
an authoritative explanation to his significance and the meaning of his coming. And, and as they did that, they did that through preaching. And notice he sends them forth to preach and to exercise authority over diseases and over the demonic realm. That, that word to send forth is a root from the word apostle, okay? It means a sent one. It means messenger, someone who goes out and proclaims a message for a king. And so they were to go out as ambassadors. Uh, they were to go out as messengers to go and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar at all? Doesn't Paul say that to us as the church, that we are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ? That we go out and we proclaim the gospel. And of course, these men uh, needed to, to do these miracles as well to validate that their preaching was from God. We don't need that today as we have the actual word of God itself in print that we can share. Well, that brings us to the third point, and that is who did Jesus call to be his disciples? And the short answer is he called very ordinary people. Very ordinary people. And, and sometimes it can be uh, very easy to forget that. We might look at the apostles and think of them as, as very different from us. You know? But we learned that Simon is Peter, and his name is at the top of the list. And then, of course, you, Jesus gave the, the nickname of, of uh, Boanerges, uh, Sons of Thunder, to James and John, and then of Matthew, who was he earlier referred to as Levi. But we learn uh, that one of those whom Jesus chose, Judas, would eventually betray him. So they were just 12 ordinary men, insignificant in the eyes of the world. Um, you, you might have heard, uh, this is fictitious, it's not true. So kids, I want to make that very clear. This isn't real. Somebody made this up. But they, they basically said, what would happen if a consultant, a management consultant company, looked at Jesus' disciples? How would they analyze them? Okay, so this is a memo uh, that's sent to Jesus of Nazareth from Jerusalem Management Consulting Firm. Very reputable company, by the way. Dear Sir, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken a series of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but we have also conducted an in-depth interview with each of them by our staff psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. Sounds good. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each one of them carefully. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept, and we would highly recommend that you continue your search for persons with more experience, higher qualifications, and greater managerial abilities. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given defense to fits of temper. Andrew simply has no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty and are quite boisterous. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale among the ranks. It's also our duty to inform you that the Better Business Bureau of Greater Jerusalem has received reports on Matthew regarding questionable business practices. James, the sons the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus both have radical leanings and both demonstrate attitude problems which could present difficulty 
and they're dealing with the public. However, one of your candidates shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, he has a keen business mind and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, responsible, and is not afraid to take the initiative. We recommend Judas Iscariot to, as the most qualified of all your prospective candidates. Sincerely, the Jerusalem Management Consulting Firm. Now, you get the point, right? You get the point. These guys are not the obvious choice of candidates for the founding team of a global organization designed to overthrow empires and to change the world, right? They were proud, they were pompous, fearful, they were skeptics, they were greedy. Matthew, also called Levi, rather is, uh, you know, basically for all intended purpose, he was a loan shark working with the Romans, right? On the other extreme, you have Simon the Zealot, who is a Jewish partisan that belonged to a terrorist cell. So, you know, you sort of have it all, you know, in Jesus' disciples. It's, it's very messy, very awkward, unlike a unlikely bunch of sinful, silly men. And these are the apostles on whom Christ founds his church. Now, if the power of the gospel breaks people out of the religious boxes we like to put them in, then are we really surprised that Jesus chose these characters who would, you know, if we could put it in modern terms, would be least likely to succeed in their high school yearbook, right? You know, that's what they would have written in there. That's who these people are. Um, but brothers and sisters, all joking aside, in all seriousness, that should be a relief to you and I. That means that there is room for you and me as disciples of Christ. All of our sin and stupidity notwithstanding, right? It means Jesus isn't put off by our failures, but he's also not impressed by our resume. He doesn't look at us and our abilities and say, wow, i got to have that guy on my team. That's not how Jesus looks at us. All Jesus is looking for is men and women who will answer when he calls and say with the prophet Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me. That's what Jesus desires. And so you may be here today and you may feel inferior. You may feel inadequate, not well equipped, at least not compared to the other people sitting around you this morning. You might be looking around and thinking, well, I wish I was like so-and-so, or I wish I had the abilities that so-and-so did, or I wish I could do this. What, what, what place do I have? What could Jesus do with me? But brothers and sisters, if you scratch the surface of anyone in this room, starting with me, okay, you'll find men and women who are not very different than the twelve. Right? That we're all the same, really. Jesus has called us just as he has called them. Right? He has called us. And he has called us for a reason. And there is something that the Lord is doing and wants to do in us. When Jesus called the twelve, he began to create a new Israel. And, and through the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus taught these twelve men, and they then proclaimed the word of God, and it is through that word that we have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come from all different backgrounds, 
We come from all different stations of life, right? There's no mistake about that. But God has called us by name to, to place us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He has called us to leave everything and to follow Him and, and to do what He commands us to do. But much like the disciples, we have the call of joy of being eyewitnesses to who Jesus is. To spend time with Him in His Word and in prayer and join His, His presence this morning, right? Let me, just, let me just say this. Jesus is advancing His kingdom today like He was when He was on earth. The difference is he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and everything has been placed under his feet for the sake of the church. And brothers and sisters, if we just go on and do business as usual, we live our lives the way that we think that we ought to live our lives, we come to church, we feel comfortable, we have just enough of God to do what we want to do, you know, most likely we're going to see Jesus' kingdom just sort of pass us by in one sense. But, but what if, what if instead of living for ourselves, we said to the Lord, God, I don't feel very equipped uh, to go out and to share my faith. Lord, I don't feel very equipped for you to use me right where you have me, however you choose to use me for your kingdom. But I will trust you, Lord. I will follow you, and I will, I will give you my all. And then watch and see the way that he works through us. In one sense, that's sort of what this so challenge is. And for those of you that don't know what that is, you can go to our website. But basically, it's a challenge we're doing this summer to challenge us to just share Christ in our everyday conversations. It's not to give a gospel presentation, but it's just to begin to engage people and to begin to talk about God and see where the Holy Spirit might lead in regards to that. But as we take those kind of challenges seriously, because we could just look at the so challenge and think, okay, I can't wait till Pastor Rick gets over this kick and we sort of get through this summer and then we can just sort of get back to business as usual, okay? We could take that attitude and there's nobody holding a gun to your head that says you have to do it or anything like that. But what happens if we take the Lord at His word and we pray to Him and we say, Lord, you use your church to proclaim the gospel. I am part of your church and I want you to use me. And we see what happens. You never know how the Lord might work and how he might even bring revival in our community as we follow him. But brothers and sisters, we must follow him. We must give him our all. We must spend time with him, ready for him to send us out however he might to see what he might do for his glory. Amen? Let's take just a moment and consider those words and, and pray to the Lord. Uh,
Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much in your wisdom that you have chosen uh, to, to call the weak things of the world, the apostles, Lord, to be your men by which you would found your church. It just shows us, Lord, your great, great and mighty work through things that, that we would consider weak and maybe sometimes even insignificant. Oh, but Lord, we give you praise that we see your mighty power at work through your church and, and, and you continue to do so down through the centuries. And we praise you, O oh God, that you continue to work. And we thank you, God, that we could be part of that work as well. Lord, I pray that where we might be tempted to be lukewarm, Lord, that we might be tempted to uh, follow you, Lord, just in the way that's most comfortable with us, that, Lord, you might open our eyes to use us how you may wish. Lord, I'm thankful for this congregation. I, I am thankful for every person. I'm excited. And I don't see our congregation as a, as a lazy congregation or a congregation that I have to somehow coerce to follow you. But Father, um, no matter what our zeal might be for you, we still can be tempted by the things of the world. We can still feel the pressure. Lord, we can give in to the temptations of the flesh. And God, I just pray that you would give us strength, that you would work mightily in our hearts as your church uh, to be a gospel witness in this community. Lord, maybe doing things that make us feel uncomfortable as Presbyterians, having conversations that may be way out of our comfort zone, way out of our wheelhouse, but Lord, knowing that you will give us the words to speak in the right time to be your witnesses. And so, Lord, I pray this week that as we gather with others to celebrate our nation's birthday, that you would give us those opportunities to share Christ. Lord, to plant seeds, to water, and, and maybe even to harvest God. And may we come back like the disciples were when they went out and rejoiced at the things that they had seen. Uh, Father, we thank you and we pray these things in your name that you are a God that sends us out. But even as you do, we know that you will hold us fast. It's for your name that we pray these things. Amen.